0: Hey listeners, I'm your host Daniel Schroeder and this is the Biotech and Breweries podcast. Each episode I'll share a beer or two from one of San Diego's best breweries with a leader from the biotech community as we try to make sense of the science behind some of the amazing biotech companies that call San Diego home. We're back this week with Kim Kamdar, Senior Partner at Domain Associates. We tried a couple beers from Belching Beaver Brewery and talked about the world of venture capital, including how Domain got its start, what it's like to be a San Diego-based VC, and how fortunate timing carried them through COVID. Kim, thank you very much for coming on the Biotech and Breweries podcast. It's great to see you.
1: Oh, it's great to see you too, Dan. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm excited to be able to, to catch up and um, kind of walk through some of your background and talk a little bit about what you do. But before we do, we got to get down to the good stuff. I sent you some beers from Belching, Belching Beaver Brewery, which they make a variety of beers. Um, but today we've got the Just Be the Honey Blonde, which is a blonde ale. And then we've got their Peanut Butter Milk Stout which is a stout with obviously peanut butter and some chocolate kind of flavor to it. So it's a little bit different uh, take on the typical stout. So I was thinking we could start out with the uh, Just Be the Honey Blonde. And you're you're allowed to say no to this question, but are you a beer drinker? Do you, do you occasionally have, have a few beers?
1: I do not, Dan. <laughs> I have to admit that I'm not a beer <laughs> I, drinker.
0: I knew the <laughs> answer before I asked, but I had to ask I- anyway.
1: I have to admit, I can't even remember the last time that I had a beer. So well, well this um, is good I, being
0: being in San Diego. It's obviously uh, there's a big brewery landscape in addition to the biotech landscape. Um, so now this is good. You're getting introduced to a new one.
1: Yes. Well, I was intrigued actually about the whole biotech and breweries. And it is nice to hear there's so many breweries in San Diego. But yeah, I must confess, I'm more of a uh, red wine and Sambuca. But I'm glad to be enjoying a glass of beer with you.
0: No, no problem. Um, So I guess to kind of get into the conversation while while you're sipping the the beer, would you mind just kind of giving a little bit of of background on yourself?
1: Well, sure. I'm a scientist by training, Dan. I um, have my PhD in cell biology and biochemistry and kind of knew always that I really um, enjoyed research. So even, um, I would say even while I was in undergrad, I did my undergrad at, at Northwestern. I'm sort of born and raised in Chicago, go Cubs, <laughs> although they're already out of the white. <laughs> well, you got the, you got the White
0: Sox, the White Sox are still in, in this year, but yeah, you can't I, be I'm a fan a of both of Vegas, white, though, right?
1: Yeah, well, I have to admit, actually, I'm more of a Bears and a Cubs fan, but okay, um. Yeah. So, you know, I, I went to Northwestern for undergrad, and even then I was actually looking for opportunities to get into doing research. Um, then went on to Emory University uh, to do my PhD work, which, as I mentioned, was in cell biology and, and biochemistry. And then it, it was it was interesting because at the time, you know, the path for, for folks that were in, uh, you know, had gotten their PhD was to continue to stay in academia. So it was kind of heresy, but I I really realized sort of early on that the sort of scale of research that I was interested in uh, was more likely to happen within uh, industry. And I ended up uh, applying to a bunch of different um, industry uh, sort of opportunities and landed at uh, what was at the time CBIG but it was Um, really uh, about nine months after was going to become Novartis. So it was really a fascinating time and enjoyed actually sort of the transition um, into more, you know, it was still heavy core on the research side, but starting to get a little bit of a mix on the business
0: front. I got it. Okay. And then what brought you to, you're now in San Diego. At what point did you make the move to San Diego, I guess, physically, and then also uh, career wise?
1: Well, I, Came out actually, um, so I was in the East Coast with Novartis and ended up, you know, we were starting to think about um, establishing research foundations for Novartis. And so the first opportunity that I got to come out here was really when we were building up what was at the time both the Pori Mesa Research Institute and the Novartis, the the sort of genomics uh, foundation for Novartis, GNF. And I came out on sabbatical. So I was still running a research group in the East Coast, came out on sabbatical. At the same time, I was also, uh, you know, Novartis was sort of a type of firm that allowed you to kind of enough rope to sort of hang yourself. So if you were proactive about things, they would give you all kinds of opportunities. And myself with a couple of colleagues had come up with a technology that we were interested in spinning out of Novartis. So I got a chance to make my first pitch on Sand Hill Road while I was still a card carrying member of Novartis. And that's how I learned of the Kauffman program. So this was all sort of happening at the same time. I kind of moved out temporarily or sort of while I was on sabbatical here in San Diego was helping to get GNF and the Torrey Mesa Research Institute off the ground but was also uh, getting an opportunity to kind of think about this new startup that was focused on kind of high throughput screening. And it was through that sort of effort that I ended up learning of the Kauffman program, which is an internship in entrepreneurship and venture capital. And I was lucky enough to get selected for the program. And So I was here, I would say, starting in about 99, 98 uh, for Novartis and then in uh, 2003, ended up moving to Boston, where I was essentially working with one of the first sort of billion-dollar funds that they were looking to deploy in in healthcare, which was really, uh, you know, it was really exciting, but, you know, it was a very, suddenly a very different kind of endeavor, but great fun, Yeah.
0: And it's a billion dollar fund, that's that's massive. So it must have been a large, a fairly large corporate environment still and kind of, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a, a smaller organization, I wouldn't imagine.
1: Um, well, it was MPM Capital. So that's okay. I did my um my Kaufman fellowship with Nick Galicados, who's now at uh Blackstone, but it was really a very different kind of and there's eight partners and um two offices, um, you know, a, a know, a full group. I mean, it was about 30 individuals that were looking to kind of deploy that that, uh, capital. It was a great training ground for me. I have to say it was a wonderful experience, but I also realized that it was, you know, especially as a scientist and kind of with more of my entrepreneurial sort of bent, it really wasn't, you know, the be-all end-all in terms of where I wanted to actually uh, end up from a career standpoint. So, I really recognize that I liked more the the early stage parts of venture capital and sort of having the opportunity to sort of roll up my sleeves and help get companies off the ground.
0: Yeah. And that's almost a perfect way of segueing because from your from the website, I think from when we talked before, one of the quotes that you guys kind of feature on your website is the best part of being a healthcare VC is having the opportunity to roll up my sleeves and work with passionate entrepreneurs to helping to bring great science to fruition. So that's And so that kind of brought that way of thinking, I think, is what kind of brought you to where you are today, right?
1: Yes. Yeah, I was, again, really fortunate Um, when I finished my fellowship. I, um, you know, came out, uh, got a chance to sort of meet some of the folks at Domain. I didn't know the firm at all, but they were looking to hire an associate. And I was really looking to sort of pick um, one of my colleagues at the time, Matt Weber, sort of pick his brain because he was very good at um, drug hunting and starting new companies based on drugs. He would travel around the world, particularly to Japan, long before it was fashionable. And you know, he had started going like every, you know, for about, the you know, 10, 15 years, he would go almost every quarter. So he had built a lot of great relationships. And he was starting companies based on these drugs that he would find. So I met with Eckhart and he's kind of a man of few words. So I didn't think our, you know, my interview, so to speak, was going very well, but I was really just trying to pick his brain on, you know, is there other opportunities like this to sort of get companies started? And I I was really looking to be more of a sort of EIR at a venture fund and turned out that, you know, he thought I could actually really help him. And I um, ended up, you know, uh, you know, getting offered an opportunity to be an associate early on. So this was in 2005, um, joined domain and uh, worked sort of part of you know, like 50% of my time with Eckhart and 50% of my time with the other partners. And it was incredible, great opportunity to get companies um, off the ground and uh, kind of roll up my sleeves. So we started a bunch of companies and and I continued to sort of uh, grow uh, my expertise level and and work um with my colleagues at Domain and eventually ended up becoming one of the managing partners.
0: That's amazing. That's great. Yeah, it was fun.
1: It was so, really
0: fun. So I, there seems to be, there's, there, maybe this is going away, but there's always been kind of a stigma from what I can tell in the venture capital world, where if you're not located in San Francisco, Boston, New York, you're kind of not viewed as being like, you know, a real player. It almost seems like a lot of companies, historically, a lot of companies, I've almost felt the need to go up and kind of travel to those places when they're raising money. Has it been a challenge or or has it been, are there any advantages maybe to being outside some of those more traditional VC hubs?
1: It's a great question, Dan. And, you know, even before I came to Domain, um, they had sort of contemplated all this, right? So the firm was started by Jim Blair. We had headquarters, you know, one of our offices is in Princeton. The whole context was, let's think about now where we should actually place an office in the West Coast, and we were being deliberate about, should that be San Francisco or, you know, in Southern Cal? And the firm at the time actually uh, decided that they would prefer to actually be in Southern California, as opposed to San Francisco, because there was so much great research that was going on here. And there weren't very many VCs, right? So why would you ever choose to actually be sort of one of many Right. Um, and be sort of a small fish in a big pond versus you, you actually have your sort of whole host of opportunities to be able to, you know, sort of participate in the ecosystem that we're building or have built in San Diego. And I, I think we've never looked back. I mean, so, again, that wasn't I wasn't really part of that decision at yeah. Domain, but I really applaud the, the fact that they actually chose to be here in Southern Cal because it's I, I think the ecosystem here is really um, amazing.
0: I feel like over the last 18 months th- that stigma maybe has worn off a little bit anyway because i think you know now a lot of people are doing things virtually and um you don't really most people are working remotely from home uh so maybe there's even if you were in the city of san francisco you're probably just working from home regardless and not not maybe in uh kind of out in the normal network that you would be in otherwise but but that's great that's great to hear and i think as companies as more money comes into san diego i think A lot of entrepreneurs I've talked to, they hope that there'll be more investors here locally, as opposed to having to to look to other markets.
1: I think a lot of investors for, you know, maybe at least the last five plus years have really been aware that there's a a ton of great talent here. There's a ton of things that are going on in San Diego. So I feel like even if the firms are based in Boston or in, in, uh, you know, San Francisco, they at least have their sort of toe in the water here. Um, They're attuned to what's happening. And if anything, within the last maybe, you know, 18 months or so, to your point, Dan, I feel like a lot of companies are actually starting to move here as well, which Either, you know, as part of it, or like you think about sort of companies like Exact and Gardens and um, Foundation Medicine. And there's a ton of really great um, entrepreneurs that are here that are starting new companies. So I feel like San Diego, I mean, it may have once been thought of as being sort of a sleepy sort of biotech hub, but it is coming into its own yep. in a really powerful way. But the nice thing is that... Um, you know, and I hope we retain this, um, and I'm sure you felt this as well, Dan, like the environment here is so collaborative. I feel like people here actually sort of are able to kind of take a pause, right? It's not that same frenetic, gotta beat out everybody. It feels like it's a much more um, wholesome kind of environment, if you will. I don't mean to sound yeah. so, maybe this is the beer already talking to him, but it feels <laughs> feels actually like a really, um, you know, we, we're very supportive of all the entrepreneurs that are here. And I I feel like that's something I hope actually, even as we start to get bigger and I hear about all these other companies now that are kind of moving into San Diego, hope we can continue to retain that type of vibe, if you will.
0: Yeah. I think it does seem like it's a a fairly small, a a manageable community maybe because it's, it's a large community and it's, I think, you know, most people kind of put us in maybe the top three or so markets for life science in the country but you see a lot of the same faces when you go out to events or when you're, it seems like a lot of people, a lot, everyone kind of knows each other to a degree still. So I agree. Hopefully that doesn't get uh, kind of tossed aside or hopefully we don't, we don't lose that as it continues to grow.
1: Yeah. Oh, completely agree.
0: Yep. So, okay. So looking at uh, at domain, I think it'd be great to have you kind of walk us through how a venture capital firm operates because I think a lot of people are somewhat familiar with it, but it's it's kind of hard to understand where the money comes from, what the thought process is, and when you're making an investment. And then after the investment's made, like what's the life cycle of the investment and what what's the expectation going forward? Because I think when you look at life science companies and you hear about fundraising successes, the dollar amounts a lot of times are massive and it's and it's hard to know you may not hear any news about success or an outcome for that company for, for several years or even longer in some cases. And it's hard for, I think, the average investor or just the average individual to understand uh, how that works and kind of the logic behind the dollars that are going into these companies. So I guess the first question on that on that vein of thought would be like, so how hard is it for a venture capital fund or firm like Domain to raise money? Like, And when you go out to raise money, where where do you typically go to, uh, to raise? Is it, is it individ- like high net worth individuals? Is it family offices? Is it institutional money? Where, where does the money uh, typically come from when, when a firm like yours is, is fundraising?
1: Yeah, I think, um, Dan, you've hit on sort of the typical sort of sources, although I will say that it's, feels like it's actually changed over time. So, you know, again, my um, colleague, Jim Blair, um, you know, he started Domain like now 40-ish years ago. It was actually the first um, dedicated fund for healthcare. So it's kind of interesting because Domain is very much a sort of, you know, we don't really tout our own home. We sort of put, put your head down and do good work, let yep. the results kind of speak for yourself. Jim was certainly of that ilk and and the, the people that he actually surrounded himself with early on, like Brian Dovey and, and Kathleen Shoemaker, um, Jesse True, you know, that core team, what they actually initially were doing was raising small funds. And it was predominantly, you know, from institutional investors at the time. So large pension funds, you know, universities, things of that nature. And what they were at the time actually articulating was that, boy, healthcare, biotech was going to be a sort of very distinct beast in and of itself, that you really wanted to have people who were kind of specialized in that, um, you know, understanding maybe of, of how those those companies and markets would sort of play out. Um, and so you, you didn't want generalist investors that were doing both tech and biotech. You really wanted a dedicated sort of group. And so they went out and raised their first true fund for for healthcare, for biotech. And I remember even asking when I joined Domain years and years later, decades later, um, you know, how Jim even picked the first funds, right? Because he had invested in Amgen as sort of an example of kind of the first company that, you know, one of the first companies in the first fund. And he said, you know, the reality was there were no <laughs> companies. Like it wasn't like there were hundreds, like there are thousands yeah. plus to invest in like there are today. But to get back to your question actually, Dan. so what is interesting is that over time i feel like it's changed. so you know, it was predominantly you'd raise the funds from the institutional investors or large you know sort of pension funds, et cetera, universities and and you would actually dedicate you know a particular fund to you know, and maybe there would be you'd raise, you know, whatever amount of capital right initially we were for domain it was smaller funds the largest fund we ever raised was 700 million our sweet spot is really about sort of $100, 150 200 million for domain but the reality is that you know over time it felt like the investor base actually changed very much to what you were also saying like high net worth individuals their sovereign funds so a different kind of balance that's come into you know, in into the sort of makeup of who we actually raise the funds from. And we'd go out every typically about sort of three to four years and raise a new fund. So you still have, you know, activity going on at the previous fund that you've raised. You still have a number of those companies that you're looking to actually have good returns from. You use sort of your built up track record to go out and actually raise new capital and start a new fund where you're going to have another slew of companies that are, that are just in that particular fund. So these are sort of discrete kind of funds with very discrete companies. You continue to invest in the companies over time, but ultimately what you're really, of course, looking to do is return capital to your limited partners. And the only way that you can do that is if you actually are either able to get your company sold. So there's an acquisition or you're able to get the company um, public on the, you know, have an IPO either on NASDAQ, et cetera. And over time actually either uh, sell the shares or distribute back to your limited. So kind of only two ways that we sort of win in this game, which is, you know, your companies really need to reach to that level. And then what you're doing, of course, is returning that capital back to your limited partners and hopefully making a good return for them on that, on that money that, uh, that you've actually been trusted with.
0: So they'll want to do it again. <laughs>
1: yes, hopefully.
0: <laughs> yep. Um, and so what what's the timeline look like? So what is, do different investors have different expectations with regards to the investment horizon? I mean, do some of them say, hey, we want to see some meaningful results within a couple of years or some of them say 10 years? Kind of what what is the expectation usually when you guys are are raising funds from those types of investors?
1: I think for for biotech, I think most investors that understand the biotech landscape realize that it's five plus years. Um, you could get lucky and have a company get acquired uh, early on, some proof of concept, or maybe some initial clinical data. But generally, the funds are actually a fairly long time frame. When we're saying you know five plus years, that really means that your funds actually are typically going to last for you know ten plus years. So. You'll start off with a structure where it's a 10-year fund. Then you'll go out and ask your, your limited partners for extensions on the fund. You're no longer taking fees to manage that that capital, but you're still looking, of course, to actually get the best return for your limited partner. And the reason I would say that the funds have started to even grow in, in sort of the timeframes is if you can imagine, actually, Dan, you now, you know, say you're in the ninth or 10th year of this fund and you have a great exit, nice acquisition. It's generally nowadays, you know, these are structured transactions. So they're, you're getting some amount upfront, but there's still milestone payments that, are, that you have to hit. Right. So it's a great outcome in theory, but, you know, now you're waiting for, you know, some like, Positive data in a clinical trial or some commercial milestone, some revenue targets that can add actually another, you know, three, five years onto, you know, even that sort of acquisition event. So the funds typically now are, you know, sometimes even fifteen plus years. yeah, of course, what we'd like to do is be able to shorten that as much as possible. and that's why, most VCs are really looking for things that are sort of already late enough stage that they can sort of see a path to liquidity within five years or so.
0: Yeah. And so after you've raised the money, how do you, what's the thinking or how do you identify potential you know, companies to invest in? Now, you kind of mentioned earlier that you guys kind of scour the world for um, for for drugs that have been more or less shelved, I guess, but how do you identify opportunities and, and what does that investment process kind of look like?
1: comes in a couple different flavors. I'd say, you know, one is actually the traditional sort of path that most VC's take, which is, you know, something comes in through the transom. You've, you you have an entrepreneur either that you've met before, or know actually, or or actually somebody's introduced, and you are now looking at a new opportunity that, to some degree, is already baked, meaning you know they have a team, they have a concept that they want to. To sort of expose you to, and you want to actually sort of understand better, and so that's sort of the traditional kind of route. But there's also a lot of, say, a lot of firms now that do actually the company creation, where you're essentially rolling up your sleeves and saying, okay, look, we think there's opportunities in our healthcare system to be able to address X, Y, Z. Either it's a unmet medical need that you actually understand and feel like there's an opportunity to to address. Then you're looking, as you said, for drugs that actually are kind of mechanistically may fit that thesis, and you you license in the drug and start a company around it. Then look to bring in the management team, or sometimes there's sort of completely greenfield, like you you've actually decided that you're gonna you know uh, try and solve a, a problem that people haven't actually really sort of addressed yet, and. And form the company and even, you know, at times what I've loved doing is taking on sort of that acting operating role to play the CEO in the interim kind of way for a couple of anywhere from a couple of months to, you know, the longest I've ever done that is um, for Truvian for about two years, which was a little longer than I intended. But, you know, all of these are different ways that that we at Domain have uh, kind of invested in companies.
0: So I'm going to put you on the spot real quick. And we could use Truvian as an example if you want. Um but so how how big of of a, how big of is that decision made is it made on based on social impact that Truvian as an example could maybe make in the world or is it money driven I'm obviously with the amount of money moving around in the life science community and you see some of the outcomes where a company has an IPO and it's life changing for a lot of people that are involved. Um, so I'm curious to know kind of how that thought process works.
1: Sure well a lot of the thought process um, for Truvian, and I think it it sort of hangs true for for most deals that we are involved in and in one way, shape or form. It's largely about both the opportunity but also the team. In, in Truvian's case, you know, this started off as a conversation over lunch with some really great entrepreneurs here in San Diego, Mark Bowles, who started a number of companies, including Eco ATM, Peter Van Ruen. Who again started a number of companies, including Etico, which he sold to Illumina. He's now off to the races with another company called Pleno. You know, these are serial entrepreneurs, Drew Spaventa, who's currently the CEO for Singular Genomics, which we're investors in, you know, great group of folks. And they had actually during the timeframe when they were uh, hearing about, you know, or, or sort of involved in EcoATM, were hearing from the retail side. That retail was really interested in more automation, particularly for healthcare, and and so they mentioned that to me at lunch. And I, my immediate reaction was, "Gosh, why are you guys n- not working on this?" That was the first time that I had ever heard retail and healthcare in the same sentence. Yeah, this was mind you, Dan. This was in 2015, right? It was before anybody was really sort of thinking about, you know, what might be sort of art of possible in terms of healthcare in the retail setting. It was before Theranos as well. Um, and so, but it was really largely, you know, when we were at Domain, we, you know, what I was really excited about was actually understanding that there was a real pull from a potential sort of, you know, thinking about like the way the, the landscape would evolve, but also knowing that the the sort of team around the table that we would be able to sort of form Druvian with was you know those three terrific entrepreneurs that I mentioned, as well as Dina Marinucci, who's phenomenal here in San Diego, and um, another gentleman who's based in San Francisco, um, Balamanian. So, so knowing actually that we could sort of rely on this phenomenal team, and that was actually enough for Domain to say, let's let's put a couple million in as a seed and go figure out what's art if possible. And so we were off to the races. But that's often actually the starting point. It was not. We were at the time not even thinking about healthcare in the retail setting. We weren't sure. hunting around for anything. It was just an incidental sort of, you know, I'd known those guys for a while, had co-invested with them in some things, was really looking to uh, continue to sort of, you know, enjoy the sort of camaraderie that we all had. And, and lo and behold, we actually launched a, a brand new company that's really doing phenomenal right now.
0: So I'm surprised you said... Theranos in there, because I I've heard that that's known as the T word in the life science community. It's like, you don't want to say that word because it's, you know, there's all the negativity that comes with it, but it's been a a really fascinating story to watch unfold, especially lately in the, in the, uh, the courtroom, I guess, but all right. So we're (laughs) going to push pause in the conversation because it's time to try beer number two. So beer number two, as we said earlier, is the peanut butter milk stout. Again, it's also from Belching Beaver. So this one's kind of a fun one. Uh, the description is, it's a silky smooth beer that put us on the map. This beer is delightfully easy to drink with cascading aromas of roasted peanuts, dark chocolate, and coffee.
1: Cascading. And what cascading, a great word. That's
0: a good word. You don't hear that it word really when you're is. about beer. But it also, this is their number one selling beer from the brewery. It's a so, and
1: can, and you can or, tell. Or I a, said, in
0: a bottle, I guess, in your case. I,
1: I'm not. You know, I know that you're not probably supposed to smell beer like you do with, with wine, but I can't help but do that. Yeah, it does. So it smells smell really good. The, can smell the peanut butter. It's very good.
0: Yeah, you definitely can taste the peanut butter too. That's great. Oh, you
1: really can. That's that's really strong. It's mm-hmm. that's, that's pretty unique.
0: It is. So this is inspired by you had. I remember you telling me a story about uh, being at the Guinness beer factory, and you're not a big beer drinker as you shared, but but I thought this would be kind of a, a way of of commemorating that uh, that the beer you had there. So we don't. That's maybe a story for a different day. But all right, so back back to our primary our conversation here. We'll get back on track now that we've got a new beer to try. I know with domain you guys have a, a new fund. Uh, it's kind of a partnership with Medical Excellence. I'd love to have you just kind of talk through what that's all about.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, my colleague and I, Brian Halleck, who's in the East Coast, we sort of found ourselves in kind of a unique situation in that, you know, there are five partners at Domain and uh, three of them are retiring. So Brian Halleck and I were sort of like, well, we really love what we do. (laughs) And what shall we do going forward? Should the two of us actually raise a, a new fund under the, domain, same domain banner, and that would be, you know, domain 10. But, and as we were sort of going about that and about to kind of launch that, that fundraising process, we ended up sort of by happenstance, kind of connecting with a former colleague of ours, um, Eric Heil, who had been at Domain. He was an analyst and then had eventually grown to be an, an entrepreneur in residence Um, He had started a company more in the healthcare services side and then left Domain to go run that as the CEO. So he eventually sold that company and he's kind of done a a couple of others in the interim. But he had since landed at a firm called Medical Excellence Capital, which was just getting off the ground. And he introduced us to the gentleman who's uh, really was the founder of Medical Excellence, a, a gentleman named John Profeta. And John actually over the last 15 years had developed what we would call kind of the sort of a almost a, a healthcare practice for the family office. So he has really great relationships with the about 300 family offices, and um, you know understands kind of the payer uh, provider world in a way that most of us don't. He had developed really great relationships with about 33 medical institutions and about 1,100 physician scientists. And one of the family offices came to John sort of around, I think, early 2020 and said, you know, what you've developed is a potentially really great foundation for a venture fund. And John kind of thought about it and said that would be something he'd really be interested in, you know, if he could actually find the right team. And and when Eric and John and Brian Halleck and I um, and, and Joni Mancini, who's our CFO. Joni's actually worked with John for over 20 years as well. We all talked. It was definitely kismet, right? Like same values, same same kind of approach to doing business. There's a sort of humbleness, I think, that John and Joni have that, that really sort of speaks volumes to me in terms of their character. And it is it was really resonated with with Brian Halleck and I, because we felt like, boy, you know, life's too short for sort of having colleagues that you don't enjoy spending time with. And would say, you know, nine times out of 10 when we have our partners' meetings now, or we're, we're laughing and enjoying the time together. Um, and but we recognized that, you know, not only did we have a great sort of meeting of minds in terms of the values and, and what we wanted to accomplish, but but also that what John had built was a phenomenal platform for um, the next fund, especially because it allows us, you know, I feel like a kid in a candy store because it allows us actually a great opportunity to be able to reach out to lots of phenomenal physician scientists and kind of get the opportunity to sort of um, learn what they have spent in some cases, much of their life, you know, sort of researching and actually roll up our sleeves with them and start new companies. So we are, you know, five companies in now in our new fund um, with medical excellence. But it's really a merger, I would say, between domain and medical excellence that has come about in a really nice manner.
0: The timing, I would think, has got to be awesome because... I can speak for myself and a lot of others, but this last 18 months at times has been very exhausting. And a lot of people, I think, have had problems kind of with burnout. And, then, you know, so I think for, given the the merger, it's got to almost kind of breathe new life, not just into your career, but into kind of the what you guys are doing as a team. Because it's kind of a new, it's a new kind of, you know, direction in a way, not not a completely different direction. But I would think that's got to, the timing almost as a blessing, I would think, because it's probably, it's probably made things more interesting and more fun and maybe hopefully kept you going, I guess, during during this really fun pandemic we've all been living through.
1: <laughs> oh, absolutely, Dan. I, you know, if anything, I would say I've felt a little bit badly, right? Like here we are in the midst of a pandemic, you know, starting, you know, early 2020. And it felt like actually almost cognitive dissonance, right? Because things were going so well in the biotech ecosystem right? Lots of money being raised for companies, lots of, you know, public offerings, lots of new company creation. And yet the world as a whole is actually suffering yep. hugely, right? And the only, only blessing, I, I mean, great to be able to really start this new fund, meet new people, you know, focus on doing a bunch of new company creation. It's also been nice to be able to see, I would say that, you know, the again, the larger biotech ecosystem has played a huge role, I think, in trying to address um, the challenges on the pandemic, what's been lovely to see is, you know, not only kind of the successes, of course, of Biontech. you know, diagnostics has played a huge role in terms of being able to really sort of deliver opportunities. And it's, I think, shown a nice light on what is art of possible in science and and the role that diagnostics can play sort of globally globally. Um, I think the fact that there's huge disparities in the healthcare system, again, this is an, an opportunity for us to actually do better as an ecosystem and ensure that you know when we're actually talking about delivery of healthcare, that we're doing so in a way that is that is, you know, provided across the basis and not just concentrated in a few pockets. So, so you know, I would say it's been thought-provoking actually, being living through this pandemic. Feeling like there is actually, um, you know, great opportunities for us to make contributions, but almost sort of an awesome kind of responsibility as well. That I think all of us globally feel in the biotech ecosystem have have um, stepped up, and it's uh, been great to see.
0: Yeah, no, agreed, absolutely. With the, with the new funds, are you, are you guys still still fundraising?
1: Um, yes, we are still fundraising. Although I will say that. Uh, from a regulatory standpoint, I'm not supposed to comment on that. <laughs> Dan, not I trying apologize. to be funny I, here, but I like, like I think I knew that. The... I think I should have known that. <laughs> yeah, no, well, it's okay, funny, right?
0: We will change direction a little bit to avoid getting you into regulatory don't trouble. Run above,
1: <laughs> yes, you see, but um, yes, we, we're um, excited about the potential. I think we're gonna end up with probably about somewhere between maybe 12 to 15 companies in the new fund, and it'll run the gamut of you know. I would say probably about five to six of those will be ones that we actually create ourselves. And then a couple, just for sort of fun balance, a couple of them will be sort of later stage series B type opportunities, but the vast majority will be sort of seed series A and and a a bunch that we will actually create ourselves. So it's, it's a really fun opportunity.
0: You know, you being in San Diego, does San Diego get more focused from an investment perspective? Is there, I I hope, and I think the San Diego community hopes that most of that money goes into San Diego companies. I know that's it's kind of hard to predict, I'm sure, in a lot of cases, but um, does does it seem like, I guess, over the years, more of the investment dollars that you've placed have been into San Diego companies or has it kind of spread around geographically?
1: Well, I um, in our last fund domain, I created four companies, all of which are actually here in San Diego. Cool. And I intend to continue to actually do that. So You know, my um, I'm one of, you know, now there's uh, five of us um, on the partner side at Medical Excellence, Um, but I I know actually uh, the companies that I'm involved in are all actually going to be here in San Diego. I'm not going anywhere. I love this environment uh, far too much. And I think we have a lot of really great talented people that I hope to be able to sort of uh, tap into from a resource standpoint, whether that's, you know, as executive chairs for companies or, you know, potentially for CEOs of companies. But I, I really think this is a terrifically collaborative effort here. And um, and I, I yes, I totally will hope that disproportionately more of medical excellence capital's money ends up flowing into the San Diego environment.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. All right. I think so that that's kind of the majority of what I kind of had envisioned us covering Um really important question real quick. Do you have a favorite between the two beers? Is there one that you oh. think is like the, the winner?
1: Oh, hands down the, the peanut butter milk style. It's just so unusual. I Isn't mean, it? It's, yeah. It's, it's yummy. Yeah. It's great. really got a great taste after drinking something heavy like this though. I'm definitely going to have to go hit the squash courts <laughs> to burn it off.
0: <laughs> yeah. Anything else that you think you would want to share either about you know, the company or about maybe the San Diego kind of life science landscape in general.
1: Great questions, actually, Dan, how do you see the San Diego market evolving? I mean, if I'm allowed to sort of turn the tables, if you will. Yeah. Well,
0: I have no science background, so I kind of um, have maybe a more basic uh, perspective, I guess, than, than what you or many others in the life science community would have. But it's interesting, I guess, to look at the last 18 months, the San Diego economy may be kind of similar to the the national economy as a whole. I think people were starting to get a little nervous that we kind of are maybe seeing a little bit of a peak financially, nationally. And then and then the pandemic kicked in and we saw initially at least some major financial problems and some turmoil. And it's since then has turned around and we've seen a run up in, you know, real estate values, which that be really a result of of people coming down from the Bay Area and other areas, where now they can work remotely, and, and so there's been maybe been some people deciding to relocate to San Diego. But it's been it's been interesting. I think there's a lot of companies that have, I think from my perspective, have have struggled with the the new world that we're in, and there's some that have really been able to pivot or kind of you know benefit from it in some cases. So I think it just kind of depends on certain industries have definitely or certain sub industries have done a lot better than others. But I think the ones that have done well, I think, are much more nimble, and will come out of this probably stronger than 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 uh, they would have been otherwise. Time will tell. You, you know better than me. But I think um, it seems like there's definitely also been a, an increase in, and in, there hasn't been a shortage of money flowing into to the healthcare and life science industry. I think the the yeah. the uh, vulnerability this has kind of brought to light with, in general, I think has has made it clear that there's a lot of need for investment and research. And and a lot of growth in in this industry for sure. So that's that's my take on it.
1: <laughs> you know, one thing that you said, which I think really resonates, Stan, is that in the past, when people would talk about kind of downturn on the economic front, um, the difference I think though is that, say, like you look at sort of, you know, the 2008 sort of financial um, crisis. A lot of companies actually struggled at that time. Um, but they hadn't they hadn't sort of filled up their coffers in the same way that that you know the the life science companies have been able to do so um, in this current sort of last what 18 months or so. And so yeah. I feel like even if there is actually a sort of a, a softening of the markets if you will or a downturn the, the interesting dynamic is you're going to have a bunch of companies that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars like that's a different kind of, of um, scenario than we faced in previous sort of downturns of the market. And and I think that's going to be really interesting to see play out because those companies have all the capital that they need in order to be able to sort of get to this next level, which you know, will allow them to kind of both grow into valuations, but I also think some will use that capital to actually instead of just growing organically, will actually look to sort of acquire new technology, which means that it'll keep the MA kind of cycle still um, pretty frothy, which again will I suspect be a very different kind of uh sort of landscape than what we have been you know, what we faced in sort of previous downturns. I mean, everything is sort of cyclical. And that's one thing I think that's kind of nice, like, you know, having been at Domain for last kind of 17 years, but certainly having the experience of somebody um, like Jim Blair, who's been at it now for, you know, four decades plus, the markets are always cyclical. And you sort of have to kind of prepare for that type of Of um, ups and downs. But the reality is that this sort of, you know, any softening or downturn is going to look, I think, different because the companies really have their coffers filled up pretty dramatically.
0: Yeah. This is almost a case of the haves and the have-nots in a way, because there's some companies, maybe that have more funding than they're going to need, while there's others maybe that that maybe you're in a sub-industry that's not getting as much attention and are maybe struggling to, to raise money. So do you think there's any truth to that?
1: Yes. No, I think that is actually true. And I also think there are, you know, this may be actually sort of an argument against smaller funds, but there is also, you know, VC funds that have raised an enormous amount of capital and will actually be able to continue to support their companies. Um, The reality is, though, that the data actually shows the opposite, that venture returns on smaller funds are, in fact, better than than venture returns on the larger On those larger funds, so it'll be interesting to see how all of that actually
0: plays out. That is a perfect little commercial for your firm. What you just said, (laughs) what a what a good way to end. No, no, yeah, that's that's good. But um, I'll have to I'll have to cut that part out and make sure that part. If people listen to the podcast, overall awesome. But if you're only going to listen to 30 seconds, that might have been the blurb to listen to (laughs) right there. (laughs) Well, awesome. Well, Kim, this has been so much fun to to catch up with you. I really appreciate you doing this.
1: Yes. Well, thank you so much, Dan. I enjoyed this a lot. I hope some of it is usable. <laughs> this was really this, great. This talk. whole thing
0: has been fascinating for me and hopefully it will be for others. So, so thank cool. you. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Kim to be kept in the loop on new episodes, please visit biotech and We'll see you again soon.